Well, are you the type of person who believes the ends justifies the means, that whatever it takes to get a job done is, is worth it? I think that sadly has become somewhat of the American way, which is probably why there are so many unqualified leaders in our country. We as a society don't seem to care too much about who a person is or what they do behind closed doors. So long as they get the job done and, and they're effective, they, they get a pass. And so there's countless stories about politicians at all levels who in the public eye appear nice and friendly, but behind scenes are, are known for being wicked and, and vile. To their family members or to their staff, they're, they're characterized by uncontrolled rage or substance abuse or sexual morality. Such things are described as open secrets in the political world, but they're, they're tolerated so long as they don't become a PR problem. No one really cares what you do behind closed doors. All that matters is optics, and so long as you look good and you get the job done, you're, you're good to go. There's too many examples of this, but it makes me think of the, the tragic case of Toronto Mayor Rob Ford, if you remember him. He actually passed away a few years ago. But while he was in office, he was known to being a raging alcoholic behind scenes. People really didn't seem to care, though. In 2010, when he was running for the office of mayor of Toronto, when his DOI conviction became public, his numbers went up 10%. Not sure how that works, but once he was in office, he was still known for substance abuse. It wasn't until he was finally caught on film in 2013 doing cocaine that he finally admitted he had a problem, but he refused to resign. And he did the political thing a couple months in rehab, but then he was back in office. And after all this, you would think that his political career would be over. But no, in 2014, he ran for city council, and he won by a large majority. And so it goes with example after example. A person's life could be falling apart. They could be quite the deviant behind the scenes, but people are content to look the other way so long as they get the job done or there's money to be made. This is not a Democratic issue or a Republican issue, just a human sinfulness issue. And it's certainly revealed itself to be the case in the media world these past few months. I'm sure you know who I'm talking about, from Harvey Weinstein to Kevin Spacey to Matt Lauer. You had men who were known to be, apparently, sexual abusers and deviants in that world. And again, these cases were all described as open secrets in the pretty corrupt world of Hollywood. But everyone knew and no one seemed to care so long as the money was rolling in, at least where this is what we're hearing this point ratings were high now sure there's a wave of accountability and firings right now and that that's a good thing for people to for the wicked to finally be held accountable that that's good but at the same time why didn't so many people speak up 10 years ago or, or whatever because ultimately so many people in that world didn't care so long as the optics were good ratings were high the money was rolling in the job got done a person's character didn't really matter for the job. Their behavior didn't, didn't really matter. But I just want to make sure you know that it, it's the exact opposite with the church. Before God, it, it doesn't matter if you get the job done. It doesn't matter if you're the most skilled or capable person around in your field. If your character and if your behavior don't meet his standards, you're not qualified to lead. Christ church is not a business, but a bride. And the Lord wants his bride wearing white when he comes and returns for her. God wants the church to be marked by his own holiness. And on a human level, that's not going to happen if the church is being led by ungodly and unqualified men. And this explains why, like we read this morning, that the qualifications in scripture for church leadership, they're all about character. They really have nothing to do with a person's skill set, apart from maybe the ability to teach. But otherwise, the, the, the qualifications are all about your character, who you are as a person. We're not talking about perfection. Otherwise, no one could lead. But a certain level of maturity is required where one's life is not characterized by habitual sins or egregious sins. The standard of holiness is essential for the leader's of the church. But here's what's also pretty amazing. That this same standard of holiness is required 
for the servants of the church as well. There's a second role in the church, that of deacons. And we learn in scripture that they have nearly the same character requirements as elders. Deacons, they're not the leaders of the local church. They're the key servants who handle the, the material needs. Still, they must be spiritually qualified to, to do their job. And the list of character qualifications for them, it matches that of the elders, the pastors. So just think about that. I'm sure you would agree that our, our nation's leaders, from presidents to governors to senators, they should be morally qualified to lead. Right? We, it's not always the case, but we would hope so, right? But what about... What about janitors or waiters or, or garbage men? Do they need to be morally qualified to do their job? I would say that most people would say no. You know, I mean, their, their life could be filled with vices, but so long as they leave it at home, they're going to contain it behind closed doors, it, it doesn't disqualify them from their job. But again, it's, it's not this way in the church. Even... The servants, those who work behind the scenes, they must be qualified for their role. Why? Because to God, what matters most is is you, your life, your character matters, your behavior matters. Even if you're simply the person in charge of, of cleaning the facility, if you don't meet the character qualifications, you can't serve as a deacon. Now, again, don't get me wrong. We're not saying you have to be perfect to serve at church. We're all sinners. We, we still fall short in many ways. We know that. But we're talking for the elder and the deacon, those who are given a, a special title and role in the local church, according to the New Testament. They thereby represent Christ to the world in, in a bit of a special way. And so they must be qualified. They must be qualified. And this morning we're going to learn more about these qualifications, specifically for that second role, that of deacons. Now, if you were here last week, you know where we're going with this. If you weren't, I'll just quickly get you back up to speed. Our church has not had a deacon ministry for some time now. But as we learned last week, when the needs of a local church started to outgrow the capabilities of the elders, deacons were raised up to assist. And further, these deacons were, were recognized such that the church knew who they were. And likewise, as our little church starts to grow, we want to be more intentional about raising up deacons to assist in various ways. And what that will look like, we'll, we'll detail more in the future. But for now, I figured this would be a, a great opportunity, and we just finished Philippians, to teach a few messages on the nature of deacon ministry. Because that's what we're up to. We're going to finish that today just to explore scripture and learn what deacons are, are all about. What does the Bible say about this, this second office or role of the New Testament church? That's what we're trying to figure out. And so we're using a little bit of a Q&A format just to assist with this study. And we're trying to cover these seven questions about deacon ministry answered from scripture. So that's what we're up to. Seven questions about deacon ministry answered from scripture. And today we're going we're gonna to finish by looking at the final three questions. But real quick, I'll, I'll recap for you the, the first four questions that we covered last week. Last time we, we asked, number one, what is a deacon in general? What does the word even mean? And the word for deacon is derived from a Greek term, diakonos, which means minister or servant. And so the word for deacon just means one who serves, one who serves. But then we ask more specifically, question two, what is a deacon in the church? What's a deacon in the church? And before the end of the first century, this word for deacon, it just means servant. It had become a technical term, a title for a role or office in the church, the, the office of deacon. In contrast to the other office, the office of elder. Deacons, they weren't always a formal role in the church, but when they, when they were, they came alongside elders to assist in meeting all of the practical needs of the church. And so deacons in the church, they were the, the ministry servants, the key ministry servants. And then third, we asked, how did deacons originate? Where did they come from? And here we did a little study of Acts chapter 6, 
which in a way tells the origins of deacons. In Acts chapter 6, we learn about the apostles where the needs of, of the early church were becoming too large for them to handle. And so they raised up and, and appointed seven qualified men as, you could say, like proto-deacons to serve, to assist, so that they, the apostles, could devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. And we learn from this account both the priorities of the church's shepherds and the church's servants. These are really complementary roles in the church. They're not competing roles, vying for power, elders versus deacons, but they're complementary working together to, to shepherd and build up and serve the church. Now, more specifically, last we asked last week, question four, what is the role of deacons? Just trying to get more specific about the actual task of deacons, like what do they, what do they actually do in the local church? Now, the New Testament does not directly address this. There's no little verse that tells us the exact job description of the deacon. We know that in general, the elders were the spiritual shepherds of the church, and the deacons were those practical ministers dealing with all things material and physical and logistical for the church. But more specifically, historically, the work of the deacon included preparing and serving food for the hungry, collecting and distributing giving to the poor and needy, and caring for widows, prisoners, and the sick, and so forth. And today, deacons can help in a plethora of ways. Pretty much, if there's any need in the local church that would take the elders away from the ministry of the word and prayer, it would be a perfectly good place for deacons to, to rise up, to step in, and to help. All right, so that's what we all covered in greater detail last week. We'll leave that there. Now we're going to pick up, we're going to finish with these three final questions just to help us learn more about deacon ministry in the Bible. And last time our questions seemed to focus around the, the role of deacons. This week they're going to focus more around the qualifications for deacons. And so, in fact, let's just ask question number five now. What are deacon qualifications? What are deacon qualifications? And you can open your Bibles again to 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're not already still there, 1 Timothy chapter 3. In 1 Timothy and Titus, Paul is addressing very pastoral concerns. And in both of these epistles, he includes these qualifications for those who serve as elders, pastors, or overseers. Those words all mean the same thing, or all the same person, rather. But it's only here in 1 Timothy 3 that we find a, a similar list for the second role in the church, that of deacons. And this passage gives us a really good picture of what it looks like, what it takes to, to be a deacon in a local church. So let's read first. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Get an idea here. Look at verse 8. He says, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine but or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So here's the main passage on deacons in, in the New Testament and includes many qualifications. We're going to just go through these now quickly, but one by one, and look at these qualifications for deacon ministry. We can identify eight altogether. The first, a deacon must be dignified. A deacon must be dignified. Verse 8, he says, deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. This word speaks of being honorable. This is the person who is noble and serious. This is a parallel requirement for elders, where in verse 2 it says they must be respectable. Nearly the same thing. It's also the same as the requirement 
that the apostles gave in Acts 6 that those who were going to serve as those first deacons had to be men of good reputation. In general, elders and deacons must be respected. And being faithful, being reliable, I think greatly plays into this reputation of respect and dignity. I think we all tend to lose respect for the flakes in life, right? Those who continually bail on their responsibilities, who make excuses. But the deacon who's going to be managing key tasks must be faithful in all things, such that they're garnering a reputation of respect and dependability. Think back to my days as a college pastor, and you quickly learn in college ministry who's faithful, who's not, who's respectable, who's not. In the sense that, you know, there are, there are always some people who they would sign up to serve at an event, for example, in a key way. But I just knew that if I didn't give them a reminder call the night before, there was a good chance they wouldn't even show up. They, they said they would be there, but just over time they earned a reputation for themselves of being a person who just wasn't dependable. They're not respectable. They're not a person of their word. People like that, they can still serve at the church, of course. But that's not who you're looking for as a deacon. Another aspect of being dignified or respectable is honorable behavior. This is the person who knows how to behave. And not trying to suggest that you know the elder or the deacon has to be always you know stuffy and uptight and, and can't have a good time. But at the same time, they have to know when it's time to be serious. And there is a time in the local church, so there's, there's serious work at times, and and the, the elder and the deacon have to know how to act accordingly. I mean, just like you wouldn't want your doctor joking around and, and acting flippantly when delivering life-changing news. And so there, there's a, a certain respectability and dignity that has to go with both of these offices, elder and deacon. So first, just like the elder, they must be dignified. Secondly, a deacon must be honest. A deacon must be honest. From verse 8, it says they must not next be double-tongued. Not double-tongued. This really speaks of, we would say today, the two-faced person. Or maybe someone with a forked tongue. We're calling the image of, of a serpent and even Satan in the garden. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. And Satan epitomized being double-tongued in the Garden of Eden. It's all about saying one thing but meaning another in order to deceive others. And that's what Satan did as the, the father of lies. Christ likewise condemned the Pharisees for the same thing, their deceitful and, and hypocritical nature. They were all about saying one thing, but, but doing another, meaning another. They were deceivers and, and hypocrites and so forth. And it should be obvious that those who are going to serve in the church They must be marked by the opposite, by honesty, truthfulness, where your word is your bond. If your words continually can't be trusted, well, then you can't be entrusted with anything really that important. Rather, like like Christ said, rather, all of us should aspire to speak truthfully to one another. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Just be a, a person of your word. Say what you mean mean what you say, all part of being honest. And for deacons especially, this is important, seeing that they will assume some critical tasks, and the elders, and the whole church will come to rely on them for their critical service in many ways. But dependability, faithfulness, honesty, reliability are are all needed, and they all just tie together here. The servant of the church must be a person of their word. And so say, for example, you you volunteer to serve at church and you're going to help an elderly person at church who no longer can drive and you're going to be their ride every Sunday morning. You you, you commit. You'll pick them up 30 minutes early, get them to church a bit early or on time. And if that's the case, well, honor your commitment. Where You don't need a reminder call. Your, Your yes is a yes. You're going to be there on time every week. You don't let excuses creep in. You, you're just a person of your word. You're going to follow through. You don't say one thing but mean another. You're there. You're committed. 
this is the picture we're getting of a dignified, respectable, honest servant. Third, a deacon must be sober. A deacon must be sober. Continuing verse 8, it says they must not be addicted to much wine. This word addicted speaks of occupying your mind with something or to obsess over something. And this word can be used in a positive sense. Later in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, we are told to give attention to or to obsess over the reading of Scripture. And so in a, sen- in a sense, you could say, you know, we're to be addicted to God's Word. That, that's, a, that's a worthy obsession to have where you're just devoted to the Word for the man or the woman of God. But in contrast, what should not characterize the servant of God is obsessing over alcohol or, or drunkenness. Now, Paul is not categorically ruling out alcohol, some alcohol consumption for the believer. He doesn't say wine, but, but much wine. You must not be addicted to much wine. And the issue is always drunkenness in Scripture. But understand that although that our society is cavalier toward drunkenness, in Scripture it's always represented as a serious sin. It's not a small thing. Drunkenness must not mark the elder or the deacon or any believer for that matter. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but rather be filled by the Holy Spirit. God takes this seriously, being given over to alcohol or or any mind-altering substance for that matter. There are many today who boast in their drinking ability and glorify drunkenness, but in Scripture, this is never a virtue. It is always a vice. And like Ephesians 5.18 makes clear, we're not to be filled or controlled by alcohol, but rather filled or controlled by God's Spirit. To be filled with alcohol is to be ruled by your sinful flesh. And that just brings out the worst in people. But God wants us filled with His Spirit, which means to be ruled by our new natures, and that brings out the best, Christ-likeness. And so it should be a no-brainer that the leader and the servant must display spirit-guided thoughts and actions. Not being a heavy drinker also reflects a person's self-control, discipline, and, and even joy. Joy in the Lord, that they don't need alcohol to drown away the world's worries. You know, just this past week, rankings came out uh, of the states or the places with the highest levels of alcohol consumption and abuse. And can you guess what location was top of that list? It was Washington, D.C. Number two for alcohol consumption, number one for alcohol abuse. And it's just a, it's a sad statistic for the city filled with our nation's leaders to be so marked by substance abuse. But may it never be with the church. Now, speaking of another contrast between D.C. and the church, Number four, a deacon must not be greedy. A deacon must not be greedy. At the end of verse 8, Paul says that deacons must not be fond of sordid gain. This refers to gaining money in the wrong way. That is through corrupt measures or or so forth. And this is, again, once again, this is an across-the-board requirement. It's not just for deacons, elders as well. In fact, in three different passages... It is required of elders to not love money and to not be fond of this corrupt gain, just like deacons. You see, from very early on, people found ways to use religion, even Christianity, to take people's money. And this is a big problem among first century false teachers, and it still is today. God calls on his people to give. We know that. But if ungodly men are the ones receiving that giving and distributing it, how easy is it for them to just skim a little off the top for themselves? This is the type of corruption we're talking about here. And, and even among Christ's 12 disciples, one of them did this. Remember? Judas. John 12, verse 6 says, Judas said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box... He used to pilfer what was put into it. 
Let's skim a little off the top. But for deacons especially, this is an essential qualification because if you remember from last week, historically deacons were involved in in really the finances of the church, collecting and categorizing and distributing the giving of the local church to assist the elders in the finances. An important helps ministry, but there's such, we know this, a strong temptation that comes with money and, and those who handle money that they have to be qualified and proven. I mean, just pretend you're the person in charge. Someone's got to do it. Someone's got to take this offering plate, take it back, sort through it, deposit it. What if that's you? You're in charge of that job. And, you know, most of the offering is checks. That's fine. But you see a little $20 bill in there. It's not an envelope. It's not marked. It's not designated. It's just floating around. Would you take it? Would you be tempted just to take it? No one would ever know that it was missing. You see, it's situations like this which just reaffirm that to God, you could be the best accountant ever, and it doesn't matter. He's looking for character in his church. God is looking for those who don't serve wealth, but Christ and the church. And the deacon, likewise, must be free from the love of money, not covetous, not greedy, in order to serve God's people and help steward their giving. So number four, a deacon must not be greedy. Number five, a deacon must be secure. A deacon must be secure. This next one comes from verse nine. So look at verse nine. It says, a deacon must be holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, Paul often uses this word mystery to refer to some truth that was previously veiled, but now it's revealed. And here, the mystery of the faith, that's really just talking about the gospel, the mystery of the good news of Christ Jesus. And that mystery has been revealed now that, that Christ, the Messiah, has come. And he lived a perfect life and yet died on the cross and rose from the dead to pay the penalty of our sins, to offer us forgiveness and new life, and so that now those who repent of their sins and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior would not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the basic gospel message. And it's a big theme in First and Second Timothy. And the deacon, he's saying here, like the elder, they must cling to this gospel mystery. Believe it. Guard it. The elder and the deacon must not be ashamed of it but secure in his faith where he is continually holding fast to the truth. He's not wavering in his faith. He's not doubting any longer. He knows what he believes. He's secure in the faith. This really is an important qualification for elders and deacons because, you know, there are some who believe in Jesus, but maybe even a little part of them is ashamed of the gospel. In other words, all the pressure of society and the world causes them to lose courage and, and stay silent. And although God is patient with those who have a, a struggling faith, the elder and the deacon must be those who are secure and steadfast. They're holding on to the faith with a clear conscience. They're not ashamed. They know what they believe and in whom they've believed, and they're secure. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. See, the elder and the deacon must be those who, who believe it's the power of God, who, who don't think it's foolishness, who, who really believe, and they're not ashamed. And they, they hold securely to the word of the cross, and they minister it. Accordingly, the next qualification is very fitting. Number six, a deacon must be proven. A deacon must be proven. This is now from verse 10, which says, these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now I'm using the word proven here instead of tested, because that's really the idea behind this word. This word for test, verse 10, does not carry the idea that you know, you're trying to break someone or cause them to fail, Rather, this test has the idea of trying to verify someone, to prove someone or something. 
It's like a quality control test. You know, the idea like you have a product, you're trying to test a product. You're not trying to break it or make it fail. You're just trying to prove it and verify it, it works. It's in good working order. It's safe to go. It's like, you know, if you were a, a parachute manufacturer, you would hope they would have a, a bit of quality assurance testing going on, that they're checking the parachutes for holes or ripped cables or something like that. Only tested and approved parachutes would be deployed, right? And only tested and approved deacons should be deployed. The Lord himself was all about testing people. Like he taught in the parable of the ten servants, only those who are faithful with the small things will be entrusted with bigger things. You've got to prove yourself faithful first with little before you're entrusted with more. But if a person can't handle smaller and easier tasks under light pressure, they're not ready for bigger and harder tasks under greater pressure. And if a person's character buckles under a light load, their character is going to buckle under a heavy load. They're, they're not ready. So let them be tested and proven first. And so here's how it works. You don't just slap the title elder or deacon on someone. You don't just find someone who's popular or nice or maybe a successful businessman and say, hey, you know what, you're elder now or you're deacon, and now fill these shoes. This is your job. That's the exact opposite. You, you don't do that. Rather, you look for people who are already proving themselves faithful with all the little things. They're already meeting these qualifications over time. They have an invaluable commodity called proven character. That's special. That takes time, but they have proven character. And they're already showing their character to be beyond reproach. And it's these people that you simply entrust with more. It's such people who, they're basically already functioning as faithful and qualified deacons, and you merely recognize them by giving them the title. That's the way to do it. And also notice here, this test, it's, it's ultimately the same as the test for elders, the test of being beyond reproach, he says in verse 10. You see, even the servants of the church are required to be above reproach. This means being without charge or accusation. No one can bring a charge against you because you're blameless. Now, of course, this doesn't mean sinless, but it means free from serious sin or habitual sin. The deacons, again, they're, they're not even the leaders of the church. They're the servants of the church. But that being said, anyone who's given a title in the church, people are going to look to them just by nature. And deacons, they certainly do lead by example. And so we may call them actually a type of servant leader. And therefore, they must be qualified. This is why they must be qualified. Their beliefs, their character, their background, their reputation, their track record must all be examined by the church, by the elders. Let them be tested first and proven. Then let them serve as deacons if they're beyond approach. Well, let's finish up now. We have two more qualifications. We'll do these quickly back to back. Number seven, number eight. A deacon must be a faithful spouse and a deacon must be a faithful steward. A faithful spouse, number seven. A faithful steward, number eight. These final qualifications are both domestic in nature. Now we'll come back to verse 11 in a second, but jump down to verse 12, where Paul resumes these deacon qualifications. He says, verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife. Now this is the same requirement given in verse 2 for elders, same thing. In English, you might read this and think it's like a prohibition against polygamy, but it's not. Now certainly polygamy was prohibited, but that's not what this means. Basically this phrase simply means a one-woman man, a one-woman man. In other words, this is a statement on the marital faithfulness and sexual purity of the deacon as with the elder. Understand, to be an elder or a deacon, you don't have to be married. Jesus was not married. Paul, as far as we know, was not married. And those who are single can in many ways serve more, Paul taught. But if a person is married, they must be completely devoted to their spouse and faithful. 
any sort of infidelity is disqualifying for the elder and the deacon because they are, by definition, the opposite of beyond reproach. They can be reproached. So they must be a faithful spouse. And to finish verse 12, he says they must be good managers of their children and their own households. And here's another qualification required of elders and deacons. This word for managers, it's really a leadership word. Where deacons, they may not be leaders in the church per se, but the men are certainly leaders in their home. This reflects God's design for the family, where the men serve as heads. Now, we know this does not mean at all that the husbands are better or more valuable, more significant or superior to their wives and children. It's simply that God has ordained that the husband should have this role, the role of leadership, providing direction and spiritual guidance to his family. He must steward his children and his household and lead them in the way of Christ. And deacons, in many ways, they're like the stewards of the church. They help steward the finances and the building and all the material needs of the church. But just like you wouldn't want a financial advisor who's going through bankruptcy, you wouldn't want a key servant in the church whose, whose own household is, is not in order. Rather, first, let a person get their household in order. Then they'll be qualified to help bring God's household to order as well. And so there we have it. These are eight qualifications for the role of deacon in the church. But I hope you overall just get the big picture, which is what? That this is, this is a high standard. This is a high calling, probably higher than you may have thought before. You may think, you know, you know, elders, they're up here. Deacons, they're kind of down here. And then everyone else is at the bottom. But it's not the case. The qualifications are basically the same as for elders. And that's because the position is not about skill, but character. And the church is not a corporation such that we will happily look over the more skilled worker in favor of the one who's just qualified with these characteristics. That's what matters. Again, someone could be the best web developer, the best financial planner, the best landscaper. But they can serve in the church, but if they're not qualified, they're not going to serve as a deacon. They can't serve as a deacon. It's a high standard, a high calling. Now, I will point out one difference between the elder and the deacon in these qualifications. A notable absence for deacons is the requirement that they're able to teach not required of the deacon, but it is required of the elder or the pastor. They, the deacon must hold to the faith with a clear conscience, but they're not required to teach that faith in the way the elder is. But this makes sense since we learn the deacon does not have a, an official teaching role in the church like the elders do. And so we just see a consistent pattern, though, that the elders and the pastors, they're the ones in a way steering the ship, and the deacons come alongside to hoist the sails. And they help with the rigging. And together, all of these people work to move the ship of the church forward. But understand and appreciate those who are called to serve as deacons have a high standard, a high calling, high qualifications. Now, you might remember we just skipped over verse 11. So let's, let's briefly go back there and, and just ask this question. Question we, we had from last week, number six now of our seven questions. We're on number six. Can women be deacons? Can women be deacons? Look at verse 11. He says, Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And so this verse, it begs the question, can women serve as deacons? Paul is clearly talking about deacons in the verse before, verse 11, and the verse after verse 11, still talking about deacons. So who's he talking about here? He inserts verse 11 as this parenthesis on women serving in some way. But who are these women? Paul simply uses a generic term, gunikos. That, that can refer to women or wives. So it's a term in the Greek. It's generic. It can mean women or wives. And both are legitimate options. So what did Paul mean? If he's talking about wives... Then this is a reference to the wives of deacons. If he's talking about women, though, then this is a reference to female deacons. So which is it? Well, five times in chapter 2, 
Paul uses the same word to refer to women in general. But at the same time, in the very next verse, verse 12, he uses the same word and it clearly means wife. So we're still left wondering, which is it here in verse 11? Well, as with all words, they derive their final meaning from the context. And you study further this text and the context, and we come to the conclusion that Paul is talking here about women, not wives, but just women in general. And so therefore, verse 11 is, I believe at least, a reference to female deacons. So to answer the question, yes, women can serve as deacons, in the local church. Let me briefly support that conclusion for you. Now first, the word likewise in verse 11 is a clue. Paul used that same adverb in verse 8, where he used it to introduce a new category, uh, the, the category of deacon, apart from elders, and he gave them their own qualifications. And that would fit here in verse 11, where Paul is again introducing a new category next to deacons, that of the female deacon, and giving them their own qualifications. Now, speaking of their qualifications, in verse 11, the qualifications for women, it's a shorter list, but it's basically the same thing. They're all just repeated aspects from the requirements for male deacons. And that would make sense if this is female deacons. Also, we can point out, at the time, there was no word in the feminine for deacon. So it's not like Paul had another word he could really use If Paul really wanted to refer to merely the wives of deacons, he could have used a pronoun and said, not just wives, but their wives. He didn't do that. Now, some translations like the King James actually read their wives, but understand the word there is not in the Greek that was added by the translators. Now, quite compelling, though, is the point that Paul nowhere gives any sort of requirements for the wives of elders. And that's extremely odd. If Paul's talking about the wives of deacons here, it really doesn't make any sense. Why would he give qualifications for the wives of deacons, but never any qualifications for the wives of elders? That one's kind of hard to answer if he's talking about wives. And finally, we can point to Romans chapter 16, verse 1, which appears to give us a case in point, an example of a female deacon. There Paul says, in concluding Romans, He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at at Cancrea. In this verse, Paul calls Phoebe a servant or a deacon. It's the word for deacon of that church. Now, some will say Phoebe was just, you know, a female servant of that local church. But this is the only place where Paul uses the word for deacon in connection to a specific local church. And given that Phoebe was tasked with delivering the letter of Romans to the Roman church, most believe that she was indeed a female deacon, a female servant of the church. Paul describes her as a great helper of himself and all the churches. And overall, Paul, like the Lord, had a high view of women and a high view of their capabilities to serve others. He commends women often in his letters even as his ministry partners, like he did in Philippians 4, we just learned about. Now, granted, per God's design of male headship, we know that women are not permitted to serve as elders or pastors in the local church. Paul made that crystal clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But for women to serve as deacons poses no contradiction because this role does not involve teaching or exercising authority over the church. And so it's for these reasons that we take the view that, yes, women can serve as deacons in the church. And deaconess seems like an appropriate title for them. Historically, this fits because there are records of deaconesses in the early church. There's even a report of the governor of Bithynia, who's a wicked guy, in the early 2nd century, and he was torturing a couple of Christian women for their beliefs, and he referred to them as deaconesses, and at least they were known. Later on, though, the role of deaconess disappeared as the Catholic Church took shape. Ministry for women became relegated to the celibate orders, i.e. none. Like you were none or, or that's it. But in all, we believe women can and do play a vital role in the life of a church, as they do in the family and in the society. But understand, for women to serve as deaconesses, They must be qualified, 
And they must be just as qualified as their male counterparts. In fact, these qualifications in verse 11, they're essentially repeats. He says they must be dignified. That's the same word he used for men in verse 8 to start the list. He says they must not be malicious gossips. Now, I've got to be careful here because this word in a, in a hyper-literal translation would be she-devils. Not joking. And the word in Greek is diabolos, which means devil. It's in the feminine form. So some have put she-devils to think that's where this came from, she-devils. But keep in mind, the word diabolos, it's not a proper name for the devil or for Satan. That's not his name. The word just means slanderer. And so it's just saying they must not be slanderers. That's all it means. They're just like their male counterparts who must not be double-tongued. The female deacon must be honest, not a slanderer, a person of integrity. Next, it says she must be temperate. That's actually parallel to being not addicted to much wine, being temperate. And then lastly, women are to be faithful in all things. And that just sums it up. It's the same for men. God requires men and women who serve as deacons to, to be faithful in all things, to prove themselves faithful to God in all areas. The women who serve as deacons, they must be just as beyond reproach as the men. It's likewise a high calling, but a high standard. Well, our time is nearly up, but we can briefly finish with our last question, which is this, number seven. What is the deacon's reward? What is the deacon's reward? And this will help us just finish our passage, which is verse 13, to finish this little uh, section on deacons. He says, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. It's kind of like Jesus said, the first will be the last, the last will be first. And if you want to be great, then be the servant of all. And so it's fitting that deacons who give of themselves in service to the church, they should obtain a high standing. To the world, those who serve are, are lowly and insignificant and unworthy. But to the Lord, they have a high standing. Think about that. Before the Lord, to have a high standing, those who serve. Do, for theirs is a high calling and worthy service. The second reward is mentioned, namely, great confidence in the faith. That sounds nice. As serving well as a deacon procures confidence before God, not an arrogance or a boastfulness or a pride, but this settled confidence in your position before God. This is confidence of a genuine faith, confidence of true salvation, confidence of being pleasing to the Lord. And all this comes from the fruit that deacons bear in their work of service. So this is a special reassuring promise given to those who serve the church as deacons. It's a high standard. It's a high calling. But they gain a high standing and and a high reward. Now the final thought though, I, I want you to understand that this being said, despite deacons having a high calling and a high standard, the call to serve is for everyone. It's not just for deacons. Just like evangelists, some are more gifted, but we're all called to partake. And so with deacons, some are gifted to serve in special ways. And we thank the Lord for them, but I also want you to understand we're all called to serve. You may not be a deacon by title, but you're still a servant of Christ, which means you live to do his will. And that includes serving others. So the work of service is not just for the deacons, but, but all of us. In fact, we've looked at many qualifications today for deacons. But it's important for you to remember that these qualifications for elders and for deacons, they're, they're no different than qualifications for all believers. In other words, elders and deacons, they don't have a separate standard. Like, you know, this, this standard is for those super godly people. Rather, there's only one standard. For all Christians, it's the standard of Christ-likeness. In fact, all the qualifications we learned about this morning, elsewhere in the New Testament, that describes all believers. That, that should describe all of us. We're all to live beyond reproach. It's just that elders and deacons are held to a higher accountability to that one and only standard, the standard of Christ-likeness. And so just learn from this that wherever you are in your walk, excel still more 
such that you're making these qualities a part of your life, that you are aspiring to, to be above reproach and to live and serve the church. We're all called to serve one another as the hands and feet of Christ's body. So take up that calling. Whether you're, you're recognized as a deacon or not, take up the calling to serve. We do thank God for those who have a special calling and gifting to serve as deacons. And in the future, our little church is going to be more intentional with identifying those who do serve in that way. But may we all take up the call to serve Christ by serving one another. That all of us may hear from him on that final day, what he says in Matthew 25, 23, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's serve him who served us first with joy. And let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we are grateful this morning for how you first served us, how Christ came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. We thank you for that ultimate act of sacrifice and service by which we're saved as we place our faith in him. We, we thank you for that. And Lord, we now follow Christ and he leads us in the way of service, humble, selfless, sacrificial service. And I pray that characterizes all of us at this church, that we all take up the high calling of serving and the high standards that you have of, of all your people to, to be holy, to share in your holiness same time, Lord, we want to thank you in advance for those who serve as deacons and who will serve as deacons in this church for their special calling and gifting and their special service. We give you thanks for those who help the church sail smoothly. May you keep them in your word and in your will and keep them above reproach that, that the church will be blessed and taken care of. For all who lead, elders, deacons, for all of us, Lord, we just we want to pursue you. We want the church to be a light to the world and may, may be characterized by our service of one another. To your glory, to your praise, we thank you for this study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.